Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In Prudentius's poem, The Psychomachia, or The Battle for the Soul, after the battles and combat seem to be finished, there's a final sneak attack that is made in the very heart of the camp of the virtues. And we find that there's two virtues in particular that are very, very important towards the end of the work. And one of those is the virtue that is going to be attacked. So we begin with concord, concordia, an agreement between people, a lack of disagreement, gives the command to take the victorious pennants and flags back to camp. We read that the army looks really wonderful. They're marching back. They're singing songs psalms on one side of the line, the foot soldiers, the mounted soldiers singing hymns from the other. And this is likened to the victorious Israelites looking back to the Red Sea during the Exodus. And so with the defeat of vice, the virtues sing their psalms. The victorious army at least reaches camp. And so it seems at this moment, like everything has been successful. They have defeated all the vices. The vices have left, but there's still one vice left there on what turns out to be a suicide mission. Concord is struck in the side by a lurking vice. She's uninjured because the fabric of steel repels the point and the blow does not reach her flesh, yet an opening allows her skin to be scratched. Discord, the opposite of concord, discordia, had slipped among the virtues in the guise of a friend. She left her torn cloak and her snakes behind while with olive branches in her hair, she joined in the celebration, but she hid a knife in her clothes because she wanted to hurt concord. And concord here is talked about as the greatest of the virtues. So she she fails, but she partly succeeds in that she's able to scratch Concord. Uh, Concord's comrades turn towards her, see blood dripping through the armor, and then they all want to know what's going on here. And they surround Discord and they say, who are you? They demand of her, they tell them her name, her race, her nation, and her faith, who sent her, and the name of the God she worships. In her fear, she cannot lie. What does she say? Well, this is very interesting. Instead of it just being a natural tendency of human nature to be in disharmony with each other, discord here is identified with something that has to do with religion. She says, I am known as discord and sometimes men call me heresy. I see God in various ways, now smaller, now greater, now in a twofold manner, now single. When I desire, he lacks substance and is a ghost, or he is my soul when I decide to, to mock him. Belial, is nothingness, is my teacher. The world is my home. And then faith, the virtue who first fought at the very beginning, will tolerate no more of such blasphemy. In a single thrust, the queen of the virtues pins with a spear the tongue of discord and stops her breath. The other virtues tear the body of discord apart. Each of the virtues tosses a bit of her flesh into the breeze or to the dogs or to crows. 
Pieces of her body are dropped in the sewers and flushed out to sea to be devoured by monsters. Now, this is very interesting. Dreadful heresy torn limb from limb has perished. It's kind of similar to what happened with ira, wrath or anger, where it was turned against itself. The penalty, the death of discord, which tears things apart, is to be herself torn apart and thrown asunder. So now we have all of the virtues safe and settled behind the protection they've built in the center of camp. The two sisters, Faith and Concord, who have been identified as, you know, the greatest of the virtues, the queen of the virtues, stand there on the platform, united. United in what? Their sworn allegiance to the Lord, to Jesus. Since they share authority, they stand together, and from that place, they summon all their followers. So we have concord and faith existing in a relationship of concord with all the other virtues who they rule over and govern, all of whom are in concord with each other. Concord then gives a speech. A very important speech. She says, listen, you've won the victory. You beat the vices, but the peace of this nation demands that all men in field and town live together in harmony. Quarrels at home upset the good common to all. Difference from within will weaken us abroad. So if you don't want the vices to come back and beset you, if you want this victory to be a permanent one, we got to have concord. I'm concord, but I need to see concord with the rest of you. And she she goes on and says, a will divided always assures disorder and will place two at variance within one heart. Human beings themselves can be divided against themselves. Let love unite understanding. Let our one life exist for one aim. Separation is not strength. Just as Christ can intervene between God and man, joining mortality and divinity so that the flesh and God's spirit are kept together, may it be that one spirit will form in us and in the body be one action united. Let's see concord. And then she goes on and says, virtues that are active, virtues that are doing their jobs will produce only peace. Peace is the standard by which the stars flourish and the earth is always at rest. Without peace, nothing is actually pleasing to God. So we have to watch out for wrath. We have to watch out for envy. We have to watch out for pride. All of these vices that we've fought before. So this is a very important speech. And the assembled virtues cry out in sorrow about the superficial wound. Faith then adds some final words. Don't cry in sadness. This is the hour of our victory. Concord has been hurt, but faith has been defended. Indeed, Concord stands by me and laughs at her wound. Concord has saved faith. Faith is safe. There's only one remaining task, my captains. The war is over and yours is Solomon's job. So what is Solomon's job? Well, Solomon is this biblical figure, the son of David, one of the first effective king, we could say, over the Israelites. Solomon takes the kingdom that David had and makes it yet stronger, makes it more prosperous. Solomon asks for one thing from God when you know asked what he would like, and that is wisdom to rule over his people. And Solomon gets to build this very important symbol, the temple. 
So Solomon builds a physical temple in Israel. This is taken by Christian authors like Prudentius as a sign of what we are supposed to do within ourselves, build a temple that will be a lasting edifice within our own souls. And there's a lot of symbology here. You know, we can read through some of it. Faith and Concord lay out the building. They measure the four sides so the walls will be square. The corner's true with no unequal side to break its symmetry. There's three gateways. On the east side to the south, there's three gates. And the west and the north, there's no building stone brought to that place. Only a single gem through which the passageways are cut. There's 12 gateways. You know, they have the 12 names of the Apostolic Senate. And you know, we could go on and on with that. The symbology is less interesting and important, I think, for modern readers. What's really important about this is that within the building itself, within the inner portion of it, there is, like he says, an inner chamber is built standing on seven pillars cut from a boulder of ice-like crystal topped by a stone cut to resemble a shell holding a white pearl. What's the importance of this pearl? The pearl of great price bought by faith after she sold everything at auction and paid for it with a thousand talents another biblical metaphor. Here is wisdom, another virtue enshrined and setting in place all her realm by framing laws to be the safety of mankind. Wisdom is supposed to be within all human beings, and this will help to keep away the vices. There's more to the story as we see in this final invocation to Christ, right? To you, O Christ, most patient of teachers, we give thanks. The honor that's your due. Our hearts have been fouled by sin. It was your wish that we find the dangers in us and recognize the struggle that our souls endure. So the battle had to take place within us. We became strong in the ways of virtue, but were weakened when virtue is captured and dragged away in bondage so that we and they are slaves to the most shameful sins and content to be damned. The virtues by themselves without Christ are not enough. They can be taken in. They can be reduced to slaves of vice. So it goes on. How many times has sin been defeated? We felt ourselves glow with God's presence. How often then have we cooled and given in to foul desire? There's a tendency towards backsliding, towards the progress that's being made morally, not being consolidated and made something reliable and lasting. They go on and say, the war in our bones and man's double nature is always in the throes of rebellion for flesh oppresses the spirit like day while the spirit that was produced by the breath of God is always hot in the bleak prison of the heart, rejecting even in its bondage the filth that is the flesh. So we have to conquer our desires and that is only possible through the consolidation of the virtues and Christ within this Christian framework, faith and concord being central to that and wisdom helping to rule. And this is where the poem ends with a final, perhaps, victory over all of the vices. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.